Funding for this edition of Think Tank with Steve Adubato has been provided by the Northward Center, the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, moving the region through air, land, rail, and sea. TD Bank, New Jersey Sharing Network, NJM Insurance Group, serving New Jersey's drivers, homeowners, and business owners for more than 100 years. Summit Health, a provider of primary, specialty, and urgent care. Delta Dental of New Jersey. Everyone deserves a healthy smile. The Healthcare Foundation of New Jersey. And by Johnson & Johnson. Promotional support provided by the New Jersey Business and Industry Association. And by Jaffe Communications, supporting innovators and changemakers with public relations and creative services. Hi, I'm Steve Adubato, and we uh, kick off this program talking everything you want, need to know about healthcare with Brian Granulati, President and CEO of Atlantic Health System, and uh, actually just came back as we're taping this program from Washington, D.C., the American Hospital Association, where you were the former chair. Uh, first of all, welcome, Brian. Thank you, Steve. Talk about that meeting in D.C. and why it was so significant. Well, you know, it, uh, it was the first in-person meeting uh, that we've had at the AHA um, since 19. And uh, that in, in and of itself was, was pretty important and was very well attended. We had uh, well over a thousand people from across the country there. And the mood was um, just a sense of relief almost that we could come together as a field and have some really important conversations. And uh, so it was, uh, it was nice, nice to be there and nice to see colleagues um, not on Zoom uh, or Teams and uh, to engage in conversations outside the meeting room. So all in all, it was uh, several days well spent. And I'm sure, um, and first I want to disclose that Atlantic Health, one of the significant underwriters of our healthcare programming at the Caucus Educational Corporation. <clears throat> but Brian, I'm, I'm curious, the major issues that were discussed, I'm going to assume, but correct me if I'm off base here, that the, obviously the long-term impact of COVID on the hospital industry and on those who work in hospitals. But the, one of the things along those lines is, is there a, quote, great resignation going on in the world of our hospitals? Brian? You know, the, the, uh, you're right about, about the workforce concerns, and uh, that was a major topic that was discussed uh, in uh, both plenary as well as breakout sessions in terms of strategies to deal with that. But that's clearly the case. And as you and I have discussed before and have discussed uh, with others, um, this has been a long period of time that this pandemic has been going on. Um, here in the New Jersey area, for example, we were first in and saw more intensity uh, really than any other place in the country because at that time we did not know what we were dealing with. And now as we've gone through these various iterations of uh, variants and the impacts on that, it, people are fatigued. 
And um, so it is causing uh, a resignation from healthcare uh, in, in particular uh, as, as it's affected other uh, industries, but healthcare, it's been pronounced. And, and so there are a number of strategies that we've taken here at Atlantic and then you know were discussed over the uh, weekend. Um, but it starts- Washington with your colleagues across the country. Across the country. Uh, but it starts by listening to your team members. Uh, you know, you've seen recently that Fortune named us for the 14th consecutive year as a top 100 employer, but there were only eight healthcare organizations this year on that list. And I think that that talks a little bit about what's going on in healthcare. But it all starts with listening. You've got to obviously address issues around compensation because, you know, that that is it's a competitive environment for a limited supply of, of folks who do this kind of work. But the most important thing and, and something that we've been doing as a company uh, for a long time is how do you grow your own? How do you introduce people into the healthcare field? Maybe they start in dietary or housekeeping. How do you understand what their aspirations are and what they, what they want to achieve? Or how do you help them create those aspirations? And then how do you put the support around them so that they can achieve those? So we have programs like School at Work, we work with community colleges um, to give people a chance to, to be what they can be uh, in healthcare. And I think that that's one of the keys to our future, to replenish our ranks. And um, I know here at Atlantic, we're having those conversations and taking those actions, and we have been for years, but we've doubled down on that. And that's what I heard at this national meeting. Brian, let me ask you this, uh, the nursing crisis. First of all, the, the term crisis has been used, overused in some ways, but there clearly is a crisis going on in nursing. The issue of, quote, traveling nurses, more and more nurses not affiliated with a hospital or a hospital system, but moving around from place to place. So I'm sure it fills gaps, but there are issues and problems associated with it, not the least of which is how expensive they are, A and B. Does that not send the message to, quote, staff nurses, hey, wait a minute, I can make more money if I'm traveling around? That can't be a good thing for the healthcare system and the patients and families you serve. So, you know, there's two sides to, to every story. So I, you know, I- At as, least. As I've told you uh, before, I round a lot in our hospitals and I, and I talk to our team members. And, um, you know, at the beginning of this latest surge that began in January, um, I was rounding on, on some of the COVID units, and, and I ran into a, a nurse manager who had lost a couple of her team members to become travelers. Now, the odd thing was that those travelers were to go within the state of New Jersey, which is not the intent. So there's a flaw in the system um, that, that really uh, enables that, because that's really not the purpose. But the real issue there for the team members was that they could make a significant amount of money in a short period of time, which helped them pay off their student debt or gave them funds to be able to go to become a CRNA or something else. And so my point of view on that is understand where they are, again, listen, see if we can create programs that can help them. But in the meantime, while they go away, make sure that our arms are open so when they come back, we're there for them. And, and I think that this is a cycle that we're going through. I think we don't have enough capacity in nursing schools right now. That's why we're having conversations with several 
um, higher learning uh, organizations to help do that. And the big challenge are clinical preceptors. And so what does that mean? What's a clinical preceptor? Got about a minute left. Go ahead. What's a clinical preceptor? Sure. So uh, I'm sure early in your career, somebody was at your shoulder trying to help you um, do what you do. And that's really what a clinical preceptor does, because we know that the educational curriculum doesn't necessarily cover it all. And when you get into a clinical setting, you need somebody at your shoulder and at your elbow to do that. My daughter, for example, just became a physical therapist. You know, she went through a PhD program. Uh, She's working. But boy, does she rely on her mentors who are at her side in the practice she's in now uh, in Boston, in the Boston area. And, And that's really what we need to do. So if you step back and think about a lot of people that are retiring earlier now, maybe 55 or something, they're retiring because they don't want to take a full load of patients in nursing. You give them these roles where they can be mentors and teachers. And I think we begin to bring that back in balance. So here at Atlantic, we put on a very large effort, a symposium to try to make sure that we were looking at this problem holistically. And I think we've got some good solutions that are really emerging. Brian Granulati, President and CEO of Atlantic Health System. Uh, Brian, I want to thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, I'm Steve Adubato. That's Brian Granulati. We'll be right back right after this. To see more Think Tank with Steve Adubato programs and to listen to Think Tank with Steve Adubato, the podcast, visit us online at steveadubato.org. If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PhD, and follow us on Twitter at steveadubato. Hi, I'm Dr. Sharif Elmahal. Did you know that there are nearly 4,000 New Jerseyans waiting for a life-saving transplant? And 67% of those people are people of color. Just one organ and tissue donor can save eight lives and enhance the lives of over 75 people. Let's come together to raise awareness in our diverse communities. Donation needs diversity. You have the power to make a difference. For more information or to become an organ and tissue donor, visit www.njsharingnetwork.org. We are honored to be joined for the first time by uh, Professor Moya Bansalei, who's co-chair of the Berkeley College Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Advisory Committee. Professor, good to see you. Good morning, Steve. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Describe de- diversity, equity, inclusion. A lot of people talk about it, but understanding what it really is and why it matters is a different story. Talk about it. Absolutely, you're so correct. Uh, Diversity, equity, and inclusion, they are not just buzzwords or words that roll off the tongue so people can feel good about themselves. They're actually a set of practices, procedures, and precepts and principles that enable not just companies, but individuals to include all, all peoples to the tables, to their teams, to their events, activities, where uh, people feel included, um, whether it's based on their race, their gender, their sexual orientation, national origin, um, a disability, military status. I mean, there's so many aspects to diversity. And I think, um, you know, sometimes people tend to box it in into a couple of little things, but it's so much broader than that. And I believe that every individual has a responsibility and a duty to promote it. Well, let's, let's push this a little further. You know, 
and, and Berkeley College is one of our higher ed partners, and, and I'm curious about this. Do you think it's, I don't want to say easier, but that in the higher education community, it, it seems like there's more receptivity to be engaged in real efforts of diversity, equity, inclusion than it may be for other kinds of organizations outside of higher ed. Is that just my impression? Um, no, you, you're probably correct. And that's because obviously um, institutions of higher education, we, we, our goal is to, is to teach and to help students to learn and to enter the, the workforce and in their careers. And we understand that these are the future. This is the future of our country, the future generations. I mean, eventually people will retire and move on. And we understand that we're raising up a whole new generation of people. And this is why higher education tends to be more sensitive and, and welcoming and engaging in this DEI space, I believe. Right, devil, I'm sorry for interrupting, Professor. Devil's advocate. If someone says, listen, uh, I like my organization the way it is. I've got people that I've known for a long time. Yeah, we sort of come from a similar background and that's why we, our chemistry is so great. We, we were similar, we know each other, we look very much alike, skin color, a whole range of issues, gender, se sexual orientation, all of it. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is, is the fact that if you stay within a homogenous society team or group, you are really doing yourself a great disservice because people from a, a wide race, a, a wide variety of, of scopes of, of races and genders and everything, they bring so much to the table. Um, studies have shown that the more diverse and the more inclusive and the more equitable your company is, the more productive you will be. So companies really owe it to themselves and to their, and to their employees and to their stockholders and stakeholders to really embrace these concepts because as, as we grow and evolve as a society, it's, it's something that we have to do. It's, it's bursting at the seams and it must be done. And I'm curious about this. Issues of social justice have been a big theme uh, in, our, in our society, but also particularly in higher ed and at, at your college, it is as well. My understanding, and I know, know, know Berkeley really, really well, I've done some guest lecturing there over the years, that a significant number of students who've studied in the area of social justice have gone into law school, gone to law school after that. Talk about that. Absolutely. Um, well, one of the things that, that we have initiated over the years is we have um, a, a pre-law advisory center where you know we, we provide uh, advice, coaching, and strategies to our students that show an interest in law school. And we understand that our, our student population is very diverse. Um, we have lots of BIPOC students. We have first-generation Americans. We have immigrants. We have uh, first-generation college students. And a lot of these students do not have anyone that looked like them that has um, gone to uh, law school or a practicing law. And so we understand that. And we are trying to help our students to have you know, measurable outcomes in, in becoming attorneys and, and legal practitioners, and also to diversify the bar to our little part in diversifying the bar and the bench. I talk about diversity. Uh, our producer, Abby, who was doing a pre-interview with you, uh, shared this with us, and it really got my attention. Age diversity. Mm -hmm. 
there's real age diversity, is there not, within not just the, the college, but also those who are pursuing law school after? Talk about that. Age doesn't get included in diversity very often. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, um, age diversity is equally important because we we have many generations of, of students that are in, in colleges, not just our college, but many other colleges. Um, we have students as young as 19, all the way up to 63. And I have actually worked with students at the pre, as the pre-law advisor. I've worked with students in those age categories from 19 all the way to 63 that have expressed um, an interest in law school. And, and a part of it, I, I think Steve has to do with people are very, very concerned about civil, civil liberties and of justice. And I think, you know, in, in the modern era, in the last couple of years, you know, it has really been a watershed moment to bring lots of voices to this table. And I believe the country is in a renaissance of this particular um, initiative, DEI initiatives. And having all generations involved is very, very important and critical to society. If anything, Professor uh, Bansalev, anything positive that has come out of the horrific, uh, very public, they're not incidents, they're, they're murders on camera, like George Floyd uh, murder on camera. If anything positive come out of that situation and others is that there's more of an interest on the part of more people, not everyone and not enough people, but to care deeply about civil rights, social justice and equity. And so Professor Moya Bansalei, co-chair of the Berkeley College Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Advisory Committee. I wanna thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Steve. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too as well. We'll be right back after this. To see more Think Tank with Steve Adubato programs and to listen to Think Tank with Steve Adubato, the podcast, visit us online at steveadubato.org. If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PhD. And follow us on Twitter at Steve Adubato. How do you create change? By cultivating hope. And we see that every day. In the eyes of our preschoolers, in the souls of the seniors in our adult day program, in the minds of the students at Robert Treat Academy, a national blue ribbon school of excellence, in the passion of children in our youth leadership development program, in our commitment to connections at the Center for Autism, and in the heart of our community, the North Ward Center, creating opportunities for equity, education, and growth. He's back. Our media partner and colleague, Tom Bergeron, owner and editor of ROINJ. You'll see the website up for ROI. And Jake, good to see you, Tom. Always good to be here, Steve. How you doing? I'm doing great. Hey, listen, we're getting into May 2020. This will be seen a little bit after. But there was a Renew Jersey Business Summit. Where did that take place? Atlantic City, the Borgata, if you want to give them a shout out. Very nice. No problem with that. Hey, let's just say that as I read about it in ROI, there may have been different perspectives on the business climate in New Jersey, one from business leaders, and the other one from, I think, Governor Murphy. Is, is that fake news or accurate, Tom Bergeron? No, I, I, think that's, um, I think that's a fair response. Uh, the governor has a lot of touch points that he can mention for business. He can talk about the bond rating going up. He can talk about revenues going up. He can talk about 
you know, unemployment and GDP, GDP growth, but the business community isn't quite as sold as he is, and they see a lot of shortcomings for what's going on ahead. Be more specific, what, because I believe Michelle Sikirka was there from NJBIA, Tom uh, Bracken from the Chamber of Commerce, a whole range of other business leaders. What are their primary two or three concerns about where the business community is in New Jersey these days? So look, the, the number one issue is just the communication. It's just worrying that the, the governor's office and the governor and the priorities in the legislature is a little bit more on the social fabric of the state, which certainly needs attention, and less on the business. Uh, the number one issue for all business people that you talk to is the unemployment fund. Um, everybody knows, maybe people don't know, look, yep. came, everybody paid out, and now it's up to the businesses to replenish the fund. In about 40 other states, the governor has used federal money to replenish that fund. In this state, they have not. And, and honestly, it's to the tune of about $1.4 billion that the business- Hold on, Tom, Tom, for. one second. Let's put this in perspective. The unemployment compensation fund is there for people who are unemployed, who have lost their jobs. There's a fund that pays them for X number of weeks, okay? Are you saying that the unemployment fund in New Jersey has a fiscal problem, there's a fiscal problem with it? Well, it needs to be replenished because we build up the unemployment fund when times are good, right? You right. self, the employee pays into it and the employer pays into it. Once it gets paid out, it needs to be replenished. And right now they're looking at about a $1.4 billion shortfall. So hold on, but there, wait a minute. There's a, I, give us a sense of the amount of federal dollars that came into New Jersey, uh, particularly around the pandemic, A, and B, why couldn't and shouldn't those dollars be used to replenish the unemployment fund? It's Listen, it's billions and billions, uh, six or eight billion, I believe, plus there's a four billion we borrowed, plus there's the idea that the revenues, which they said were gonna go down, actually went way up. The state has more money than they ever have had. Um, and the business community is asking to use those federal dollars to replenish the fund, and the governor and the legislature have other ideas that they wanna do it, and they said, well, we'll spread it out over three years. So that way the 1.4 billion is over three years instead of one year, which is nice. But again, about 40 other states have used federal money to, to replenish that fund. You know, Tom, I believe it was the Gannett poll, but it could have been another one. And if I have this wrong, my bad. But several polls have shown this. Uh, most New Jerseyans, I mean, I, I love New Jersey, proud of New Jersey to be a part of the state, blah, 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 blah. I love working here. And, but a lot of my friends, and this is anecdotal, but the polls are showing this, the surveys are showing it. More and more New Jerseyans are either leaving the state for Florida, the Carolinas, whatever, or thinking about leaving the state, or are they just my friends, Tom? No, you're absolutely right. And there was a poll that came out just yesterday or a few weeks ago, as we now know, um, from Monmouth that it had, I have it right here, 60% of New Jerseyans are thinking about leaving the state. This comes at a time when the quality of life metric in the state is going up. People are happier here, but they still want to leave. Again, there's a cost of living, there's an affordability issue, and that really gets to where the, the business community was. When we were down at the, at the Renew Summit, we asked business leaders, unofficial poll, just me walking around the room grabbing people, sure. that, hey, if you could start your business again today, notwithstanding any family connection to the state, but just for the business climate, would you start your business in New Jersey? And I had 46% gave a hard no, no way. Hard no. Hard no. We gave them one to five with five being no. And I had people say, can I say 11? Can I say 14? 
So it, it, it's a What's the biggest beef, Tom Bergeron? The biggest beef is that the, the taxes are high, um, the regulations are high, and there's not enough done to help the business community. We have the highest corporate business tax in the country, which we raised a couple of years ago. And people are saying, hey, revenues have never been better. Federal money's never been better. How about lowering that 12.5%? Well, you know, all options are on the table is, is the response that is always given. So let me ask you this. Governor Murphy uh, wins this election that uh, takes place. It's a tight election in 2021 against Jack Cittarelli. Uh, and New Jersey has about a million more Dem registered Democrats than Republicans. To what degree do you, and this is your sense as a journalist, as an observer of the, of the scene, to what extent do you sense that Governor Murphy it's very much focused on New Jersey, but we've had governors in the past in New Jersey, particularly our last governor, Chris Christie, with a real eye toward the White House. Do you believe that Governor Murphy genuinely is thinking about, A, the White House, and B, can you be functioning effectively doing both things, thinking about higher office and doing your job in New Jersey? Loaded question, I know. It is, and I'm going to give you a loaded answer as in yes and yes. Um, Governor Murphy absolutely is thinking about running for president. Um, he's absolutely doing things that would prepare himself to run for president. Like what? Well, I mean, just what, what can you do for safety? What can you do for social services? What can you do to raise your, your business numbers that he likes to quote? He wants to show that he's a solid progressive governor that's making things work. And look, the bond rating is going up for the first time in 20-some-odd in years. It's going up. So there are some things he can point to, which is fair. Um, he's, he, I believe he's an honest man who believes what he says and believes that his progressive road will put the state in a better place and put the country in a better place. Uh, business leaders may not totally agree, but he's certainly doing what he thinks will work and what the voters reelected him to do. Real quick, the term affordability is being thrown around a lot, Tom, but it means different things to different people and different people in different positions have different perspectives on what to do about it. When we say affordability in Jersey, we're talking property taxes top of the list, income taxes, uh, housing, Right, just living here, gas is what it is everywhere. It's, it's very expensive. What exactly can an elected official do, whether in Trenton, in the state house, or the governorship? What do you actually do as it relates to affordability? New Jersey is an expensive state. New Jersey is an expensive state. You pay a lot, you get a lot. Uh, the legislature and the governor, in the simplest terms, can quote lower taxes, but the governor can quote that he's lowered taxes 17 times. I'm asking you, I'm asking the viewers, can anyone identify one single time where they felt their tax rate was going down? It all comes out in the wash. The general idea, the general feeling is, do you feel you're getting a bang for your buck and getting a lot for your money? And for a while, I think people did. I think right now, the minute when you know prices go up for, for you know any various reasons, they're going to start looking in other directions and say, this is a tough place to live, but there's a lot of tough places to live. Also, I want to make sure we say this. New Jersey is one of the best public education systems in the nation, a great workforce as well. And I'm not going to do a commercial for New Jersey, but um, listen, it's easy to talk about all the challenges in our state and problems, but there's a lot of great things too, which is why some of us aren't going anywhere anytime soon. Hey, Tom Bergeron, owner and editor of ROINJ, one of our terrific media partners at uh, the Caucus Educational Corporation. Thanks, Tom. My pleasure. I'm Steve Adubato. That is Tom Bergeron. He's with RRI. Check them out. We'll see you next time. 
To see more Think Tank with Steve Adubato programs and to listen to Think Tank with Steve Adubato, the podcast, visit us online at steveadubato.org. If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PhD, and follow us on Twitter at steveadubato. Think Tank with Steve Adubato has been a production of the Caucus Educational Corporation. Funding has been provided by the Northward Center, the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, TD Bank, New Jersey Sharing Network, NJM Insurance Group, Summit Health, Delta Dental of New Jersey, the Healthcare Foundation of New Jersey, and by Johnson & Johnson. Promotional support provided by the New Jersey Business and Industry Association, and by Jaffe Communications. Hi, I'm Dr. Sharif Elmahal. Did you know that there are nearly 4,000 New Jerseyans waiting for a life-saving transplant? And 67% of those people are people of color. Just one organ and tissue donor can save eight lives and enhance the lives of over 75 people. Let's come together to raise awareness in our diverse communities. Donation needs diversity. You have the power to make a difference. For more information or to become an organ and tissue donor, visit www.njsharingnetwork.org. How do you create change? By cultivating hope. And we see that every day. In the eyes of our preschoolers, in the souls of the seniors in our adult day program, in the minds of the students at Robert Treat Academy, a national blue ribbon school of excellence, in the passion of children in our youth leadership development program, in our commitment to connections at the Center for Autism and in the heart of our community, the North Ward Center, creating opportunities for equity, education, and growth.